Our topic today um, is, or the question that we will be debating and, and, and talking about, um, is, is the key to effective conservation collective knowledge? Um, and we've got three uh, brilliant people with us uh, who have a great deal of knowledge, uh, uh, who I will introduce in a minute. Um, uh, but I think one of the things that very often happens and one of the problems that, that, that we have around the whole topic of conservation is what are we trying to conserve? So for me, we're talking about life on Earth or the natural world, um, but for some people that can equate to biological diversity, but the panel will disagree about what that means, perhaps. Um, natural capital, uh, I spent a few years working out of a business school where natural capital meant something. Biodiversity was uh, soap powder um, or washing powder, uh, and wildlife was something that was rather objectionable and nasty and should be destroyed. So it very much depends on what perspective you come at this as to what, what, what we mean by conservation. But more seriously, uh, if we are concerned about the natural world, there is plenty of knowledge, there is plenty of information, there is plenty of indication that the state of nature is getting a lot worse on this planet. Uh, there is a report that at least one of our panel has been very closely involved with in the state of nature, on a state of nature report, status, knowledge, etc., which shows that for the UK, uh, over 60% of our species... Uh, are in decline. There are global assessments that show that the loss of global biodiversity is faster now than it's ever been uh, in human history. And there are other studies that suggest that human activity um, has increased extinction rates of species, um, maybe other things too, um, by more than 100 times compared to the natural rate. Does this matter? Well, we'll debate that too, I'm sure, but there is quite a lot of knowledge and information which certainly suggests that this nature, this uh, life, natural life on Earth um, is incredibly important for our own future in terms of providing food, clean water, other so-called ecosystem services, however one defines them. It, there's also evidence that it reduces our vulnerability to um, natural disasters, and in the words of uh, our wonderful um, communications guru for conservation, David Attenborough, um, nature is a source of joy and wonder uh, to anyone lucky enough to experience it. So we know, we think we know, quite a lot about the reasons for the declines that I talked about. Um, and... It's mainly around human-induced land use change, climate change, over-exploitation, the introduction of invasive species by people, pollution by people, and so on. But the more we look at the problems, the more we realise that actually there are indirect drivers of those losses which are more complicated still. So human population, perhaps, economic activity, new technologies, socio-political and cultural factors. Well, how much do we know about those? What knowledge do we have? What knowledge do we need? Never mind the interaction between those and the species, the nature, the wildlife that uh, we wish to conserve. Parallel to that, there are many, many conservation actions going on. Governments, uh, private sector, organisations, individuals who care passionately for whatever reason uh, about the conservation of nature have devised a whole series of interventions um, to try and conserve and protect this 
uh, uh, the, the, the natural world. Um, but I think as a conservation community, we increasingly wonder how much we actually know about what impact those interventions really have on the state of nature. Um, and those are the sorts of things that I hope we're going to debate with you today. And we are very keen to make this an interactive session. We will be inviting, I'll be inviting the, the speakers to say a few words, give examples from their own careers of the dilemmas of um, knowledge for action and, 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 and how to do it. I'm now going to give you the one minute plug for the Cambridge Conservation Initiative. So if that's boring, um, uh, tune out for a minute. Um, but we are very lucky in Cambridge. It has the largest cluster of conservation organizations and individuals from across a very widespread uh, different group of disciplines and people um, who are committed to the conservation of the natural world. This university has leading academics and scholars and students who study all sorts of different aspects of conservation. We've got biologists who carry out incredibly detailed research throughout their career, often on a single species or a single um, site uh, that's important through to those who are trying to model whole ecosystems and how they interact with uh, non-biological factors. We've got economists who are constantly trying to put uh, a... A, 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 an economic value on particular parts of the, of the natural world or the ecosystem services that it provides. And then we've got social scientists who fascinatingly and excitingly study conservation organisations and individual behaviour. And we've got people on the panel who do all, all of those things or have done in the past. And then, in addition to all those university academics, we have this growing cluster of over 60 conservation organisations, some NGOs, some governments, some intergovernmental bodies, uh, that, that together have, have uh, formed the Cambridge Conservation Forum many years ago to share and uh, exchange ideas between them and the university. And it's from that forum that this Cambridge Conservation Initiative emerged a few years ago in 2007, which was trying to bridge what are perceived and maybe real barriers between research, policy, practical action, and building capacity, building future leadership. And that ends up being about how we generate new thinking, new ideas, how we share knowledge from across disciplines uh, between those who are doing research and those who are taking practical action. Uh, and as Dane referred to, we have been fortunate enough to uh, secure the funding to uh, foster the various collaborations and, and refurbish a building in the centre of Cambridge as a hub for that, through which people who are interested in the conservation of uh, the natural environment are passing, many of whom spend much of their working day there, others come through just for a few hours. And this is the David Attenborough building, um, uh, which will be formally opened later this year. Um, uh, but it was, in fact, open for Science Festival um, visits last Saturday. And I hope that some of the hands that went up were people who went. Uh, well, I know some of you were. I saw you. Um, uh, but we had over a 1,000 people through on that one day, which was very encouraging. Um, and although the building is mainly not open um, to the public because it's a place of work, uh, there is, for, for the next few weeks, a, an art exhibition um, that is open all the time, or at least 
during, during the day. Um, the artists who have done the public art for this building um, have a temporary exhibit, so I would encourage, that's Aykroyd and Harvey, and I would encourage you to go and visit it. So, plug over onto the real business of today. Uh, we are very fortunate that we have three leading figures from the Cambridge Conservation, Conservation community here with us tonight. Um, uh, professor Bill Adams, who is the Moran Professor uh, of Conservation and Development in the Department of Geography. He's also the head of the Geography Department and a leading writer, speaker and scholar on political ecology and the social drivers of nature conservation. Then we have Dr. Juliet Vickery. Um, who is the Head of International Research at the RSPB, that's the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds, Centre for Conservation Science. So Juliet's got a long and distinguished career in applied ornithology and has carried out some uh, pioneering research um, on farmland birds, on tropical forests and on global threatened species conservation. And then thirdly, we have Dr. Matt Walpole here, who is the Director of Partnerships and Development at the United Nations Environment Programme's World Conservation Monitoring Centre. I'm trying hard not to use acronyms here. Um, so, but I'll call it UNEP WCMC for the rest of the, t rest of the time, if you'll forgive me. So Matt led UNEP WCMC's um, global uh, and, and, and national ecosystem assessment programmes and has interestingly studied the relationship between biodiversity, poverty alleviation, and human well-being. So we've got three people with very different research and practical backgrounds in conservation. Um, and I'm now going to invite Matt to speak first, followed by Juliet, followed by Bill. We'll let each of them say their piece, give you a flavor of what they've done, focusing around um, this question of, is the key to effective conservation collective knowledge, and then we'll get a debate going between them and, and yourselves. So without anything further from me, over to you, Matt. Thank you, Mike. <clears throat> and good evening, everybody. It's very nice to be here. <clears throat> I will apologise now uh, that I've got a bit of a chest, so if I cough my way through this, um, hopefully I won't too much. Uh, the question you've set us, Mike, I think we've probably all interpreted in slightly different ways, probably in, in uh, reflecting our own sort of personal histories and perspectives of working in conservation. As Mike has said, we all come from different starting points and have had different routes through this. Myself, I started as a, an ecologist, like a lot of people in conservation. In fact, I studied it as an undergrad here in Cambridge. Um, I was very fascinated by tropical ecology, large mammals, but I decided early on that I didn't want to simply go and study animal behaviour, if you like, or ecology, but I wanted to go and, and, and study conservation, if you like, or answer questions that would, that would lead to positive conservation outcomes. I guess in many ways that is a similarity for all of us here one way or another. And what I discovered very quickly is that conservation problems are not simple problems. It's not a case of simply defining your hypothesis and going out and answering your question in a simple, narrow way and coming up with an answer that will change the world, however much we like to believe that our own areas of work will do that. So it's, they, these are complex problems and they need solutions that bring information and knowledge from a range of sources, a range of disciplines, a range of perspectives, you might say. And I suppose the other part of the message 
that I've learnt uh, through my career is that conservation is, is largely not about biological science. It's about people. It's about the people whose decisions, whether they be politicians, business people, or ordinary people in their daily lives, uh, and the implications of those decisions. And conservation has to be about how you influence those decisions. What it is that incentivizes people to act in certain ways, what disincentivizes other forms of actions, what values people hold and how you engage with those. I work now for an organization whose mission is to improve knowledge and information on biodiversity, habitats, species, ecosystems, to improve information and knowledge, to make it more accessible to help decision makers. But that's only really part of the story. Understanding decision makers and what, uh, what motivates them is the other big part of the story. And I would like to illustrate that with a, a few examples that, that I've experienced, I guess. One of the early things that I did in my professional career, I guess, once my formal training was complete, was to go out to Africa uh, to study elephants and rhinos in the conservation context. And one of the big issues that I came across was the issue of elephants and their relationship with the livelihoods of local people. Now, elephants don't sit nicely within the boundaries of protected areas. They tend to cross those boundaries, they live outside those boundaries, and if you're a farmer trying to grow crops in Africa and you've got elephants on your doorstep, you're going to encounter problems. Crops, when they're ripe, are a great source of food for elephants and an easy source of food. So as an ecologist, I approached that problem by trying to understand what motivated the elephant. So how could we disincentivize elephants from going into a farmer's field? And there's various things you can look at. So we looked at how, what it was that elephants liked to feed on. And if you look at the different kinds of crops that African farmers will grow, it's very clear that elephants will preferentially go into fields and, and take certain kinds of crops, and there are other kinds of crops they're far less interested in. If you've got a crop that grows on a stalk and waves up here, and it's got nice grains or fruits on it, that's what the elephants are going to go for first. If you've got a crop that they've got to dig up out the ground, like cassava, for instance, far less valuable to an elephant, or certainly more effort. If you grow cotton, the elephant's not so interested. It's going to trample through it, but it's not necessarily going to stop and eat it. We also looked at how do you potentially protect fields from elephants. So if you were going to farm in an area where elephants are, how can you prevent them coming into your fields? And there are all sorts of ways that people try. And one of the things that we looked at was the use of chili. Now, chili's an irritant. So if you get your chili and you grind it up and you create an oil and put it on your fence around your field, the evidence suggests that elephants will, at least for a time, step back from that. They'll, they'll go around that field and they'll go and they'll raid the field that doesn't have a chili rope fence around it. <laughs> Fantastic. Innovative. Great. We'll publish that. It's going to change the world. But, of course, it's not about the elephants. It's about the farmers. So how do you get a farmer who's not used to growing chili, to grow chili in order to make a chili fence? How do you get a farmer who's got other things to spend his money on to go to market and buy a bag of chilies to create a chili fence? What do we understand about why farmers grow certain types of crops and not other kinds of crops? It's those choices and it's that understanding which is critical to solving that problem. It's not just about building a chili fence uh, or publishing a paper because once that project, that conservation project ends, You've got to rely on the farmers taking up those options and those actions if we're going to see a solution. So understanding farmers, understanding agriculture, understanding how to deal with that is a key part of solving that kind of a problem. Where I sit now is much further from the field than those days of fun, running around chasing elephants around. 
We work in UNEP WCMC very much uh, more at a sort of higher level international policy kind of uh, sphere, if you like. So we try to pull together information that governments can use for setting policy, that businesses can use for determining their action on the ground. But it's the same story of understanding what motivates people and what, it, what, what within a system determines what people do. Um, and again, it's about bringing together more than one kind of information, more than one approach. Now, one of the things that's been foremost, I guess, in the press in conservation terms recently has been the apparent upsurge in wildlife crime, in poaching. And of course, it's always elephants and rhinos that make the headlines. Uh, we've seen Prince William and the United for Wildlife campaign. Uh, it's clearly an issue, go back to when I was studying 25 years ago, the poaching wars that were happening in the late 80s and early 90s were severe, but it seemed as if we'd gone through a period where it was less of an issue, it had been dealt with, but it's certainly resurgent, it's out there. How do you deal with that? And of course, there are multiple avenues to doing that, and you've got to approach it from multiple perspectives. So part of it is about what incentivizes the poacher to go and poach. How do we deal with that? We, there is research that shows how levels of detection or enforcement can influence whether or not poachers will be able to access animals, but you end up in an arms race very quickly. There's evidence about how you can work with local communities on livelihoods that potentially provide alternative to poachers going to poach to sell that ivory or that rhino horn. But unless you understand the motivations and the mind of the poacher, you can't really come up with the right solution from the options that are there. Dealing with supply is one thing, but wildlife crime involves killing an animal and taking the product. It involves a chain of actors taking it to market, and of course it involves a consumer. So you might decide that what you really need to focus on is that end market and reducing demand. But that's not a question for an ecologist. Understanding the cultural values around the demand for a particular product, understanding how you incentivize or disincentivize uh, a population far removed from Africa from those elephants and rhinos and the kinds of, of, of actions or projects you might put into place, whether it is something to do with changing um, cultural norms, whether it's something to do with changing laws or regulations, whether it's something to do with influencing the way that people think about something. There are multiple approaches, but there are multiple disciplines required to, to tackle that. And in between the two, of course, is that whole chain from the poacher to the market. Now, you're never going to stop poaching in its entirety, and you're never going to completely eradicate demand for those products. But in between, can you do something to slow that supply? So one of the things that we're now exploring is how you can use information technology to shine a light on some of those channels to where those illegal wildlife products are making it through the market and making it out to, those, uh, to where the demand is. And part of that, of course, relies on connecting up um, elements of legal trade. Because let's remember that, that not all wildlife trade is, is illegal. And the Convention on International Trade in, in Endangered Species allows and permits trade in threatened species to certain quotas. So you can move things through markets. And if your permitting system is not well joined up, because it's a paper permit provided here and it's easy to forge it over there to get it through your port or through your export authority, then you're going to have easy ways of, of corrupting the system. If you can create a joined up electronic system where the whole thing is seamless, potentially you can make that channel just that little bit harder. So again, you've got a mixture here of law enforcement, 
working on livelihoods and poverty issues, working on information technology, and working on um, changing hearts and minds in the consumer countries for these things, all coming together to try and solve a problem. And if you try and just solve one of those issues, you won't solve the entirety of that problem. Am I okay for one more example? Yes. Okay, all right. So as I say, where I sit now is very much about trying to get governments in particular to think about and act on some of these kinds of problems, to understand, if you like, the value that nature holds for us and the importance of conserving it and what we might lose if we don't do that. And one of the initiatives that we coordinated for the UK government some years ago was an initiative called the UK National Ecosystem Assessment. Now, this actually came... It was, it was driven by government. Uh, so the Environmental Audit Committee in Parliament decided that it wanted some kind of an assessment of the value of nature to the UK and to our society. So they put some funding in with the research councils. They asked us to convene, and we brought together something like 500 scientists from across the UK, England, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland, to do a completely, well, as comprehensive as we possibly could, assessment of what was happening to nature, why it was changing, where it was likely to go, and what the implications were for society of doing that. Now, obviously, that's not just about the ecology. It's not just about what's happening to, to patterns of species abundance or habitat extent. How do you change that into values that politicians can deal with? And, of course, you know, the obvious step, which within conservation a lot of people have taken, is let's bring in the economists. Let's try and put a monetary value on this. And within this project, there was a lot of debate about that, about whether that was a good thing to do, about how you would do that, how you could put realistic numbers on this, and what it meant. Anyway, it was, it was a large project. It brought in a lot of people, and it came up with some future scenarios of how the UK's nature and environment may change over the course of the next 50 years under different policy options, and what that implication would be for the value of nature to our society based on an understanding of what nature gives to us, whether it's food, whether it's flood control, whether it's biodiversity, because we value that, whether it's uh, recreational or tourist value of, of these sites, whether it's carbon capture for climate change. Working all these things in, we were able to come up with some great numbers of how if you go down this path, we're going to be much better off as a society. And that's what the bit of government we were talking to seemed to want. Everybody wanted to talk to the Treasury, and when we went to talk to the Treasury with these great numbers, the question that came back was, that's very interesting, but what are the implications for jobs and growth? And we hadn't thought about that, and the models we created weren't capable of answering that question. So, again, it's a good example of you really have to understand the audience if you're going to be able to bring the information together in a way that's compelling to them. We thought we had an audience. We had a part of government that was very engaged with this. Another really significant part of government had a whole different set of questions. And we, it forced us to go back in the second phase to think very differently about how we would answer those kinds of questions. So in summary, and I'm sure I've gone over my 10 minutes, conservation, thorny problems, we can only really solve them if we think about the multitude of evidence and the multitude of actors that influence those problems. We need to think about it from multiple disciplines, and we need to think about the minds of those whose, whose actions have to change if we're going to make a real difference. It's an applied field, it's a complex field, and what's beginning to happen in Cambridge, bringing together some of the best conservation organisations with some of the best academic minds, is, I think, a really exciting thing, and I guess that's really why we're all here. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat>
Juliet. Yes. Juliet, come on. Oh, you're losing your knob. Oh. <laughs> Thank you. Is it on? Perfect. That's perfect. Thanks very much, Matt. Um, I'll pick up on some of those themes about complexity and the need for interdisciplinary research. Let me say something about where I come from, though. So, um, as Mike said, I work for the Royal Society for Protection of Birds, RSPB. I'm a scientist in their Centre for Conservation Science. And the RSPB is really committed to conservation action, both policy and practice, that is underpinned by evidence. So I have uh, quite a strong view that actually to make good decisions about conservation, you do need knowledge. Um, you need other things too, but that's certainly a very fundamental part um, of what I believe. And indeed what most of my scientific career has been about. And what I want to do is um, just try and illustrate really how we've used knowledge from a lot of different disciplines um, to a very large extent facilitated by the Cambridge Conservation Initiative, actually, um, to take an area of rainforest in Sierra Leone. This is Gola Forest, which straddles the border between Sierra Leone and Liberia from an unprotected patch of forest, so surrounded by slash-and-burn agriculture, threatened by logging and by mining and illegal poaching, to an area of forest we hope uh, is being secured uh, for the long term. And I want to try and show you how the way we've done our science and the way we've used this knowledge has really helped to underpin that conservation. <laughs> so back in 1991, the RSPB got involved in this site because it was identified as a hotspot for biodiversity, particularly interesting uh, for some really extraordinary birds. Uh, this is one of them. This is a white-necked picothartes. Uh, it's been featured on Attenborough programs. It's a fabulous bird, um, but it's one of many rare species that live uh, in this forest, um, also includes species like pygmy hippo, forest elephant, and a range of primates. So fantastically important, highly threatened. Um, and for a number of years, the RSPB did what I would say is just basic sound field ecology, uh, trying to document the species that are present um, to highlight its real value for conservation. And to date, I think we've documented about 4,000 species of animal and plant in about 70,000 hectares of forest, 10 new species to science, so fabulously wealthy. And we use that information alongside people working in policy and advocacy, working with the governments in Sierra Leone and also uh, with local conservation organisations to really elevate the importance of this patch of forest uh, for global conservation. And uh, all those efforts, that science and that work in policy paid off really in 2011 uh, when the park was uh, gazetted and then finally uh, declared a national park. <coughs> So Gola Rainforest National Park, the second national park uh, in Sierra Leone, um, is kind of celebrated and launched, and this was uh, really a great success for us. But of course, you've all heard the terms paper parks. How do you stop a park just being a piece of paper? Uh, it needs money. You need money for protection, and you need money for management. So the big question for us is, how do we get this park now to be sustainably financed into the future? And in 2008, uh, we began to make a decision that we would look into so-called carbon financing. So essentially what this is about is, of course, tropical forests store carbon, trees lock up carbon uh, in their infrastructure, if you like. Um, and if you can keep those, for those forests in place, they'll store that carbon and be a contribution uh, to mitigating climate change. So carbon financing is about paying to keep carbon in trees. And there are many schemes that exist, and the scheme that is referred to a lot is a scheme called RED. And RED stands for Reduction, Reduced Emissions from Deforestation and Degradation. So RED schemes 
are ways in which you can pay to keep carbon uh, in trees. And this was a scheme that we wanted to try and develop uh, for Gola Forest. So how can we establish a, a carbon financing red scheme for this area of forest? It turns out to be extremely complicated because in order to market carbon from your forest, you have to know, of course, how much carbon is there um, and also how much carbon would be there in the landscape it would become were it not protected. So you know the difference between the carbon in your forest and the carbon in the landscape around that forest. Um, and that's an extremely technical question uh, because basically it depends on the, the size and the number of your trees. That isn't quite so technical, but counting your trees and measuring them in 70,000 hectares of forest is clearly quite a big ask. So we teamed up with scientists in the Department of Geography here and Plant Sciences who use some very clever remote sensing um, uh, techniques to estimate the carbon in forest. And I'm going to show you a couple of, I think, fantastic photographs from these remote sensing. So this is the canopy of Gola Forest from remote sensed uh, data. This plane, the two little black dots underneath it actually is a laser camera. Um, and they work by essentially firing laser beams into the forest itself. Uh, and the, the beams essentially get echoed off the, forest, off the surface that it hits. So you get this fantastic three-dimensional uh, canopy surface, if you like. So these are individual crowns of trees in yellow. And you can identify areas of, of extremely good pristine forest and areas of lower growth. And what's even, even more wonderful, I think, is that these laser beams penetrate the canopy. So it actually gives you, and that's a cross-section through the canopy taken from a laser camera. So every white dot is a reflection of a laser beam. And what this allows you to do is to estimate the size uh, and the numbers of trees in your forest. And we combined that information with some ground truthing. So we had teams going out into the field actually measuring trees as well and counting trees in plots. And those two things combined tell you about the carbon in your forest. And use a broadly same, similar technique to look at the landscape around the forest. And that tells you something about the difference between the two. Uh, and we now know that we've got about... To, uh, 975,000 carbon credits in this forest. That's what we can market, we can sell uh, on the market uh, to support GOLA. And carbon comes in at about $5 a tonne. So if we can sell 60% of, of those credits, we will raise enough money to protect that forest uh, in terms of park patrols and park management. So that's a bit about how we've had to use some, I think, really fantastic technology and some cutting-edge science in, in uh, the University of Cambridge to help it estimate the carbon value of that forest and to be able to market it. But the other thing you need to do for a carbon project is to also um, work a lot with the people who live around that forest and who would have gained a livelihood from that forest uh, were it, if you like, not protected. And uh, the RSPB is great. It's a lot about birds. Um, it's quite a lot about its members, but it's not very good on social science. We don't do a lot on social science. Um, and as Matt says, it's, it's blatantly obvious that in order to come up with solutions that work into the future, you've got to understand what people need from these landscapes too. So we teamed up then uh, with, again, scientists in Cambridge, again, through the Cambridge Conservation Initiative, um, people working in land economy, um, who did a lot of work for us with the roughly 24,000 people that live around the edge of this forest. So uh, the canoe here, the bag of gr the green sack is actually data coming back to Cambridge uh, on uh, this guy's head for us. This is questionnaires that were done in a number of these villages, uh, aimed at a number of things. So if you, if you sell carbon credits, some of that money goes to protection, some of it goes to supporting local, local people. So there's a kind of payment made to local people to improve their livelihoods. 
So the question is, how do they want to use this money? We had to understand what were the, the big livelihood asks of these people. Um, so part of it was about that. Part of it was about putting in some sort of baseline. So we know for chimps, for forest elephant, uh, for picothartes, we know how many species we've got or how many we've got there now. And in the future, when the forest, you know, five years down the line, we can go back and recount them and we'll know if we're doing the job for biodiversity. For people, we need to understand what is the kind of income, what's the livelihood situation now. In five years' time, have we really improved that through RED? So they put in some baselines for us to understand what the livelihoods are now. And it's some very interesting <laughs> experiments, really, with these people, um, with their full consent, I should add, um, asking about market systems. So, for example, if you have a market system in the West, uh, broadly speaking, you sell to the highest bidder. In, in these villages, uh, you will sell to the chief, no matter what he pays you, because it's really great kudos to sell to the chief. Uh, the market systems just don't work in the same way, and understanding that has also become very important for us in knowing how to use this money uh, from the carbon credits. So, so I think that we've used a whole combination of knowledge to, to really bring this patch of forest from unprotected, uh, uh, if you like, kind of overlooked, uh, but very important for biodiversity, uh, right up into a situation now where it's got the gold standard for two carbon credit schemes and we're selling uh, carbon credits to support it into the future um, as we speak. Um, I think knowledge has been fundamental in that, but I completely support what Matt has said, which is actually you know, understanding how local people need to use this forest too uh, is, is completely part of the picture and one in which I think we've become a bit late uh, in realising um, uh, and having to make some, some rapid ground. So thanks to uh, the CCI for bringing us into to really to collaboration with some very valuable partnerships um, and to some fantastic in-country partners that we've worked with as well, which I shouldn't forget to say. So I think I just want to say that really. That's, that's kind of an illustration of why I think knowledge is so important. I've given you an example of where it's worked. There's a few that haven't worked. We might discuss them later. So I think I'll just leave that there. That's all right. Thank you. And now I just need to... Oh, no, I'm going to skip over these. That's for later. <laughs> you can come back to those. Right. Um, Bill. Good. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Julia. Thank you, Juliet. Yeah. Right, so uh, I uh, work in the university uh, in the Department of Geography, and um, what we say we do is that we teach uh, students to think. That's what we like to think we do. Um, and I was reflecting about this because, of course, what we do in universities is we divide up into departments uh, and we teach people in different disciplines. So we teach them to think like chemists or classicists or philosophers or, in my case, geographers. And I was thinking about that word discipline because, in a sense, we discipline their minds to make them good thinkers. But in a sense, we also discipline their minds to think in particular kinds of ways. Um, and I think that's quite an interesting uh, challenge uh, when, if they then uh, go out into the world and either work in conservation or work in an area that's, that's relevant to conservation, either helpfully or, or unhelpfully. So I was going to, uh, in my remarks, talk about three questions uh, and try and um, reflect on, on disciplinarity and disciplinary thinking. Um, and trying very much to, if you like, to talk about the, the reasons why the things that Matt and Julieta talked about, this kind of um, wide-open interdisciplinary inquiry is quite 
difficult to organize. They, they might have made it sound easy. Um, and I want to say that it isn't easy. And actually, we don't know how to do it systematically, although they do know how to do it in particular contexts. So the first question is, what kind of knowledge do we need to understand conservation problems? And the, the challenge, I suppose, is that for most people, the knowledge we need is knowledge um, about nature. And I want to say that, no, actually, the knowledge that we most often need is knowledge about people. If you get a group of conservationists uh, together uh, in a room and ask them what the biggest threats to biodiversity are, while they can think of some that are, that are caused by other species, the only species that really matters is our species. It's humans. It's the species we make the decisions. We structure the world uh, by our economic and social decisions, by our cultural choices. Um, and we make the world, by and large, a pretty bad place for other species, except where the conservationists let rip and, and, and get space for, space for nature. And the funny thing about that is that most conservationists are not particularly well trained to understand people. Most conservationists still come through a science route. They do a natural science training, usually in, in some sort of biology or conservation biology. And the reason's not surprising, because if you're a 15-year-old and someone says, what do you want to be, and you are fascinated by theatres and music, they put you into an arts route, you don't do any science at all. If you say, well, I'm really, really interested in nature, I want to spend my life in a Land Rover chasing elephants or out in Africa in a rainforest, they say, right, you want to do science. Uh, why don't you do chemistry, physics, biology, uh, maybe maths? Uh, you'll be a scientist. So you train them as a scientist, and then they go and do a PhD in sort of, you know, bat biology, and then they apply to Juliet for a, for a job in, in RSPB. And she says, right, great, absolutely fantastic, not interested in any of that. We need you to go and work on people. Now, luckily, most of them are pretty bright, and they're pretty hardworking, and they're very enthusiastic, and they get it. But it can take quite a long time to get it. So we have a sort of mismatch, I suppose. Somebody people talk about as a dialogue of the deaf uh, between the sciences and the, and the social sciences uh, and the humanities. And I feel this very strongly because my own background, obviously, is in, is in geography. But I, I, um, when I was an undergraduate, I thought I was a natural scientist. I thought I was a kind of ecologist. And I went into my PhD as a kind of ecologist, working on the downstream impacts of dams uh, on ecosystems in, in West Africa. And I came out of it as some kind of social scientist because the impacts that mattered were the impacts on farmers. So I learned all about floodplain farmers and farming and all the sort of things that Juliet's been learning in her work in Gola. I had to learn through my PhD. It wasn't a particularly, um, uh, wasn't a particularly neat PhD for that reason. It was rather rambling uh, because if you start in one place and end up somewhere else, it makes a nice story, but it doesn't make a very good doctoral thesis. Anyway, so we have this dialogue of the deaf, really, in conservation uh, between um, people who uh, are trying to do conservation, who are coming at it from a science direction, uh, and the people they need to talk to who understand human society. They understand human decision-making, they understand politics, they understand sociology, they understand culture and anthropology and so on. And there are real barriers to good communication. Now, you wouldn't think so when you talk to people, uh, well, maybe like talk to me or you talk to Julia, or you talk to Matt, because we've learned over the years to have these conversations. But nonetheless, they're difficult. There are all sorts of problems of language and terminology. Natural scientists, colleagues of mine, are continually sort of put off reading papers in the humanities and social sciences because they're full of jargon. And I have to say, if you put even a paper from, the, from a wonderful journal like Science in front of someone who's an expert in sociology, you say, oh, God, I'm not sure. You know, it, it's so compact. It's, full of, you know, it's not explained very well. There's a, there's a culture in the way these ideas work. 
uh, and there is a, there's a real um, barrier uh, between them. Uh, and so people assume they know about other things. So someone looking at Juliet's slides would say, okay, right, there's some rare birds there, basically. That's all you need to know. Rare birds, tropical forest. The interesting stuff is all about the institutional framework for decision-making at the village level. Well, there is actually more to the birds than that and, and, and more to the other sorts of species than that. So there are issues of language and terminology. There are different bodies of knowledge. People who, um, who know about rainforests will get a lot more out of a visit to, to Gola uh, than me, uh, non-expert in, in taxonomy. And there are differences of what, what the uh, philosophers of science call epistemology, how we know what we think we know, how we go about finding out whether your strategy is to do a large questionnaire survey across all your villages, or your strategy is to work like an anthropologist, learn the language, go to ground and work. So there are deep interdisciplinary chasms between different disciplines. And I have to tell you that, that universities are historically the biggest uh, problem here, because we teach in disciplines. We teach I teach my students to be geographers. Now, I think, of course, geographers are you know, fantastically broad people, but not everyone uh, would agree. So what kind of uh, knowledge do we need to understand conservation? We need very diverse knowledge, and it has to be pretty strong on how people work. Um, and that is a challenge for, some, for lots of us because we're trained in understanding how biological systems work. So there's a lot of learning to be done on the job. Secondly... How do we make conservation knowledge more interdisciplinary? How do we address the problem of learning? Given that we recruit really good people into, the, into conservation, how do we give them the skills uh, that they need? Uh, and one of the obvious solutions is, well, you compile interdisciplinary teams. You put an ecologist uh, alongside, you know, a bird ecologist alongside a forest ecologist, alongside an anthropologist, alongside an economist, and that's how you do it. And they talk to each other in the field, and, and you get an, a, an interdisciplinary outcome. And when I worked in development, I used to sometimes meet up with World Bank teams, uh, multidisciplinary teams, and they were fantastic examples of people who really weren't talking to each other at all. You each write a chapter of the final report, and then the poor old team leader um, doesn't go to the pub and has to, has to synthesize. Not a good way of working, and it doesn't work in conservation, uh, conservation either. I have a student uh, who is now a quite eminent academic in the, in the States called... Um, Lisa Campbell, and she uh, was a social scientist, a human geographer, and she ended up working in Duke University Marine Lab, and she's the only social scientist in the lab. Everybody else does fish and turtles and, and, and seabirds. And she's often brought into projects as the only social scientist. And she talk, wrote a rather nice paper a, a few years ago on the plight of being a, social, a lone social scientist among a lot of natural scientists. She says, typically, you're brought in very late, you work alone, uh, you're assigned a lowly position and, and asked, asked to answer questions which you don't think are the right questions. Um, and she, she, she wrote very amusingly about this. I might say she's married to one of these biologists, so it's sort of something that, uh, you know, she doesn't, obviously she can work through. But the question she was asking is, how do you do interdisciplinarity beyond continually having to, uh, having to work as a, as a minority? And uh, what she said was interdisciplinary teams don't really work. What you need, she said, was interdisciplinary people or people who can transcend disciplines. And there's a lot of writing, but what you need is people who are transdisciplinary, not places where different disciplines sit alongside each other, but people who can work in and out of each other's disciplines. So you need anthropologists who understand the, sort of the statistics used by ecologists. You need bird uh, biologists who understand something about, uh, about anthropology. 
And that's a real a challenge for us, to create transdisciplinary and not just interdisciplinary activity. The third question I thought I'd ask is why, with all this research going on, and obviously I like research or I wouldn't work in a university, uh, why, with all this research going on, um, does conservation not work better? Um, because although we're very bullish about it and there's lots of success stories, um, by and large we're losing the battle to protect biodiversity rather than, uh, rather than winning it. And specifically, why does more knowledge not necessarily lead to better conservation outcomes? even if it is interdisciplinary. And there's a, a body of research uh, that, uh, that I'm interested in around political ecology, which talks about what they talk of as the politics of knowledge. Knowledge is not just a single block of stuff, and if you have enough of it, you make a good decision. Knowledge is actually shared and held by different people. And there's a question about whose knowledge gets to drive decision-making. Uh, and, and it's a very critical one. So whose knowledge counts in, in decision-making about conservation? It's no good being a researcher, a scientist, or a social scientist to having all the answers if you're not asked what the answer is by a policymaker. It's no good being in a university in Cambridge and having all the answers about an African rainforest if you're not actually in the rainforest with the axe underneath the tree. Okay. So there's a lot of question about who has that knowledge and how it works. And there are real questions about how you get uh, a bridge between expert technical knowledge of the kind that you get in research institutions like the ones we work in, and how you get that translated uh, into action. And critically, what sorts of knowledge are framing the ways people frame conservation problems? How do you understand the difference between, for example, the way a British conservationist would frame a conservation problem in Africa and the way people uh, in Africa themselves would frame it? What do Juliet's villagers really think? So I'll end with a very brief uh, uh, case study to, to illustrate what I mean. And it draws on one of the same themes uh, um, as Matt talked about, because it's about a project in northern Kenya um, to combat um, uh, crop raiding by elephants. You have a large, uh, well, not as large as it was, you have a group of, ele group of elephants uh, outside a national park sharing a landscape with smallholder farmers. They crop raid, and as, as, as Matt said, that's a really destructive uh, thing to happen. And I'm drawing here on research partly by me, partly by uh, Max Graham and uh, Lauren Evans, uh, who run the charity Space for Giants, who are continuing to work. There. And basically what they've done over the years is by radio collaring elephants, they've worked out where they go, um, how they move through the landscape and so on. Uh, they tried the deterrents that, um, that Matt talked about and found that they sort of work and sort of don't. And in the region they've come to the conclusion that the only technical strategy for dealing with crop raiding is to put an electric fence in. So you put a, f a four, five, or six-strand fence on big posts, you electrify it using solar power, um, and the elephants basically don't like touching it. They see the fence, they reach out with their, with their, their trunk, they get an electric shock, uh, and they back off. So they built the fence, $5 million um, Dutch aid money, a lot of work, uh, a lot of work to get you know, local communities and local people uh, to support it. And it doesn't work particularly well. Elephants still cross the fence, they still crop raid. And the question is why? Why is the fence broken? Why do elephants break through? And they break through in places where people have broken through. So why don't the local people who don't want their crops eaten by the elephants, why don't they make sure that the fence works? 
So Lauren Evans went out and did, did some research on this about, about the success of the fence. And what she basically discovered is that all of the groups around the fence were interested in the fence for different reasons. Okay, so there were a group of local politicians who wanted to build a fence because they wanted to be seen to be doing something uh, about, uh, uh, about elephant crop raiding. There were ranchers, large ranchers, large landholders, who were interested in the fence because they thought it would help them secure their land tenure. So they put the fence down the line between the ranches and the smallholder farmers. But those ranchers were not willing to have the smallholders come onto the ranch in order to maintain the fence. Meanwhile, a smallholder said, this fence is your fence, your, uh, you've built it, um, uh, you, it's your teams that have actually put the fence up, you built it, you maintain it. Uh, so neither the rancher nor the smallholders uh, were willing to actually maintain the fence, and when it's not maintained and you don't cut the vegetation, the electricity shorts out. Meanwhile, the smallholders realized that what the ranchers had done was to secure their boundary, and they wanted to cross the boundaries for various reasons. They were good grazing inside the ranches and also water sources that they had previously been using. So the ranchers were using the fence to keep the smallholders out, so the smallholders selectively broke through the fence in order to get to the water and the grazing. Uh, so instead of even, uh, and they just accepted the, the, the crop raiding problem. The other, meanwhile, there were also another group in the landscape who were pastoralists. And the pastoralists thought that neither the ranchers nor the smallholders ought to be there. Um, and they had an ongoing sort of grinding um, uh, dispute with the smallholders. So they hated the fence and they broke it on all possible occasions. My point being that the fence wasn't what it seemed to be. It wasn't a technical strategy to stop, uh, to stop human elephant conflict. It was actually thought of by people in lots of different ways. And only by understanding the different ideas people had about the fence could you start to understand why it wasn't working in the way you thought uh, that it might work. And so thinking about conservation success requires a lot of uh, knowledge, not about elephants and their movements, or not just about elephants and their movements, but about people and their motivations. But also, it demands an awareness of different ways of framing the problem and the recognition that local people who you think you're helping may actually see what you do as making things worse. So it's, it requires multidisciplinary thinking and it requires a lot of listening as well as talking. And those are all things that I think conservation is now realising, um, but it's things that we've not traditionally been very good at. Thanks. Thank you. Well, thank you all very much for that. <laughs> So the only thing they didn't do was stick to time. So we've all, all four of us, I'm afraid, took longer than we said we would. Um, however, I hope what you've... Well, to me, the thing that was really striking about all three um, speakers was the, the, the enthusiasm for connecting natural science and social science, understanding nature and understanding people, I think all of you gave examples in different ways of actually how you thought you had achieved that through your careers and through um, uh, in individual projects that you've done. But you also all said it was quite difficult. And Bill, in particular, you said that the answer to this is um, not multidisciplinary teams, but actually transdisciplinary individuals. 
you all had academic careers. I mean, you all started out as, as research scientists. You all have PhDs. I wondered if you could go back to university and um, study anything you wanted to make the biggest impact on conservation, um, given that that's what you all say you're interested in doing, what you would do now? Hmm. I'd study the anthropology of organizations, how organizations work. Um, lots of things in business studies and in anthropology about how big organizations and small ones take decisions. I don't understand that, but it'd be good. Yeah. Right. And, and just to pick up on that, so if that is what you do, do you reach out at the moment or would you like to reach out to the people that do do that kind of thing within the university you know, for your next collaborative research project or is that too difficult to do? And if so, why? <laughs> Um, well, I've had, yeah, I mean, I've had students working on, on uh, how organisations work. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but the nice thing about PhD students is you, for about a week, you know more than they do, and then they, they disappear. <laughs> so that's sort of collaboration. But no, there is, there is work going on in, in the Judge Business School. It tends to be for, on for-profit organisations. Mm -hmm. I think the really interesting ones are, uh, are government and quasi-government organisations. I have a student at the moment working on, if you want an acronym, IPBES, the Inter yeah. Intergovernmental Panel on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services, which is a great international sh you know, shebang about, um, about the value of nature. And he's trying to look at how that works, how expertise works in that. And that I find what he does fascinating. I wish I was doing it. Okay. Juliet. So I would probably rather boringly, I think I would still stick with what I studied. Mm -hmm. But, I, but I, would, I would now, if I was looking again, I would look for a course that included some more about the social dynamics, social aspects of conservation. So I was taught at Oxford purely by biologists. And um, I was never, ever exposed to any of the kind of methods of studying human behavior and decision making. And I think I would, you, I would like that. You could come and do the Cambridge Masters in Conservation Leadership. Right? <laughs> I could learn all my mistakes. Thanks. Yep. <laughs> well, I mean, interestingly enough, when I, when I did my PhD, I was in a conservation unit or hub, but it was within an anthropology department. Um, and I guess my answer would be, well, I might have listened to the anthropologist a little bit yeah. more because the point about language, Bill, is yeah. a really critical one. In that context, I, I was there with, with, with a range of primarily natural scientists. We had a few economists and lawyers and others as well. Um, but in a department that was primarily... Um, populated by social scientists. Now, on one level, a lot of the social scientists going out into the tropics, into the communities where we were working, doing conservation, we should have had a lot of um, the right kinds of things to say to each other. And yet we spoke completely different languages. And I, I remember a conversation with one of the professors. Where we, we, we were extremely proud. We had managed to get a paper published in science. Those of you who know scientific <laughs> publishing, science is a, it may have been the other one. But it, I think it was science. And um, they, tend to be, they tend to be sort of two, three, four pages. They're very succinct, as you were saying. And I remember we were jumping up and down, we've got this thing published, and one of these very eminent social anthropologists who worked for decades in exactly the same kind of places we were working, he looked at it and said, does this count as a publication? <laughs> and, and, because you know, the, the equivalent is it's a book. It's based yeah. on 20 years. And my PhD was... Um, was probably more shambolic than yours, Bill, I'd say. But it was, it was again, we, it tried to be cross-disciplinary. I ended up 
doing a PhD, looking, incorporated economic and social elements alongside the ecological and trying to understand a particular problem around a park and how you could sustain it with tourism and how local people engage with that. Uh, and yet, the social science that I was able to build in was still very quantitative. It was very reductionist. It was like the, the economics. It was based on questionnaire surveys and statistics rather than on sitting down with people over time and getting to know their story and their culture and their environment. Um, and it was only latterly in some of the work we did on elephant conflict where some of the Kenyan students that we worked with took exactly that approach. You know, we said, right, no, go off. Here's your questionnaire. Go and design a questionnaire. Come back. We'll teach you how to do statistics. And he sat under a tree and cooked a goat with the community and spent a year doing that. And he came back and we were like, oh, this guy's never going to get a PhD out of this. He hasn't done anything. <laughs> and yet he, he had half the answers just by doing that. Mm. Uh, and it was a completely different mm. mindset. Half the answers and the other half came from the questionnaire. Probably. Yes, in fact, it was the genius of bringing the two together. Yes. <laughs>